2: Hi, this is Colin. We did this show in 2018, and it's about how to stop a pandemic or whether we're capable of stopping a pandemic as capable as we should be. And to tell you the truth, as I said before, I hesitated running it uh, again because I don't want to confuse you or feel like we're saying I told you so. uh, But it also does show you, I think, how much we did know and how much we could have prevented if we had acted on so many of the things that we did as a nation and as a scientific community know about pandemics and how dangerous they are and how fast they can spread. So with all that said, here we go. This is the show we did two years ago. All right, so I don't want you to be afraid of this show. On the other hand, many of the things that will be said on this show will make you afraid. Uh, So there's the paradox, and the resolution to the paradox is knowing stuff is always better. Knowing a lot about something that is potentially really quite dangerous is always better than knowing almost nothing. Uh, Now, speaking of of knowing almost nothing, you might have missed this story, all right? It happened in May of this year, not that long ago, might have been like a stormy Daniels day or so. There was something else going on. I guarantee you. I guarantee you there was something else going on. Uh, So this is the version written actually by our friend Lena Sun of the Washington Post. The top White House official responsible for leading the U.S. response in the event of a deadly pandemic has left the administration, and the global health security team he oversaw has been disbanded under a reorganization by national security advisor John Bolton. The abrupt departure of Rear Admiral Admiral Timothy Zimmer from the National Security Council means no senior administration official is now focused solely on global health security. Zimmer's departure Along with the breakup of his team, comes at a time when many experts say the country is already underprepared for the increasing risks of a pandemic or bioterrorism attack. Zymer's last day was Tuesday, the same day a new Ebola outbreak was declared in Congo. He is not being replaced. So that should worry. <laughs> that should not only worry you, should make you kind of mad too. We're going to talk to a lot of people today about pandemics also sometimes known as plagues. We're going to also talk about the 100th anniversary of the so-called Spanish flu outbreak in 1918 that killed somewhere between 2.5 and 5% of the world's population. So uh, that's coming towards the end, but we're going to go through a a few of our contemporary problems. We're going to start with Ed Young uh, who writes about science for the Atlantic and is the author of, and he was on our show for this really interesting topic, I Contain Multitudes, the Microbes Within Us, and a Grander View of Life. His most recent article, When the Next Plague Hits, appears in the July-August print edition edition of The Atlantic, uh, and he's with us right now. So, uh, Ed, welcome back to our show. Thanks for having me. You know, you heard me read that uh, news article. So let's say I could get you some FaceTime with John Bolton to talk about this. What would you tell him? How would you try to convince him? I assume you you see this as a terrible mistake. So how would you try to convince him?
1: I do. Um you know, and actually I, I met Tim Zemer at the White House uh, last year when I was trying to to report on this piece. I would say that um, in times of crisis, it is very useful for the administration to have reliable experts on hand. I think Zima's credentials were um, unquestionable. The man had, uh, like, worked in fighting malaria overseas for for many, many years. He was a veteran of public health, a very well respected, very formidable person. And without him there, there is a hole in um, in the expertise available to the administration. Now. Now, there's not no expertise. The person who Zima was working very closely with is now overseeing uh, work on pandemic preparedness and getting the White House's strategy on that in place. And her name is uh, Andrea Hall. But She is now in charge of not just preparedness against infectious threats, against diseases and pandemics, but against things like weapons of mass destruction and terrorist attacks and, and nuclear proliferation and all of that stuff. And this, I would say to Bolton, is something that past administrations have done before of trying to streamline and package these responsibilities into smaller teams. And they have almost always reversed that decision because it turns out to be a bad idea, right? If you have more responsibility falling on one particular person, that person's time is then stretched thin as is their attention.
2: Okay, So, but Ed, I think also you have to, in this mythical conversation you're having with John Bolton, mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. presumably he doesn't take this all that seriously. Or he wouldn't be dismantling the, the team sure. that's in charge of. So so make it the case to John that that this is a much more pressing concern and should be
1: way, way uh, uh, higher
2: on his agenda uh, uh, or his hierarchy of
1: concerns. Okay, so I would say that uh, history has clearly taught us that new diseases can have a immense impact on society and that the pace at which those diseases are emerging is, if anything, increasing. So we have seen over the last few decades how something like HIV can come out of nowhere and suddenly become a problem for the entire world. World, we have seen through SARS how new diseases can rapidly spread through con- to new continents, even though no one had ever heard of them before. Ebola teaches us how diseases that we are familiar with can lead to uh, ridiculous new outbreaks. Um, and Zika tells us the same re- uh, same lesson. Flu shows us how things that we know can go pandemic can create new pandemics in ways that we are unprepared for. And you know, combined with the fact that there are more people than ever alive in the world now more of them now living in urban centers where it's much easier for diseases to spread our infrastructure for dealing with diseases is spread very thinly and investments are are shaky and uncertain and the fact that international travel is so prolific and so frequent we live in a world in which there are more threats, in which those threats are more easily spread from person to person. And this is something the world needs to take seriously. I'm going to quote Bill Gates in saying that pandemic threats are the, are the ones that really keep him up at night, like more so than anything else. It's the thing that that has the highest chance of killing large numbers of people in the future. And, and I think it's a thing that We keep on needing to be reminded of as a threat. New things come up, the world panics, resources and attention are paid to the problem, and then the threats subside and we lapse into forgetfulness and short-sightedness. And I think that's sort of where we are now with things like um, the, the, uh, the loss of people like Tim Zima, the lack of expertise in the White House. You know, on that day when Zima resigned, Trump suggested that he was going to cut this 252 million pot of money that was designed to prevent, uh, to help control future outbreaks of things like Ebola on the same day that a new Ebola outbreak arrived in the Congo. So, you know, we, we keep on making this mistake. And it's a it's a bizarre self-inflicted wound. We do not need to be bad at this. And yet societally, we have repeatedly been so. So there's sort of two phases
2: of thinking about this, at least the way that it seems to me. One of them is the sort of the second one is, what are we going to do when people start coughing? What are we going to do uh, when there's something knocking at our door? But the first part of it is, how can we have this happen less often, and how can we have it happen less pervasively and radically? Mm -hmm. And so there, we really are talking about kind of development in the rest of the world, right? As, As researchers look at this stuff, one of the things that they say is really the biggest driver of outbreaks is a lack of what you could call, in a very broad way, public health infrastructure. Right? I mean, maybe you could Absolutely. say something about that.
1: Yeah. So, so in most of these cases, we have a some kind of disease, usually some kind of virus, leaping from an animal host into a human population. Those points of contact are growing um, as people push into areas of wilderness and come into contact with animals in very biodiverse regions. We talked about the Congo, that's one of them, but it applies to places all around the world, to farms, to um, to bushmeat markets. There are many opportunities for viruses to leap across. Now, I don't think, and I think a lot of people would agree, that there's a, there's a reasonable chance of preventing those spillovers. What instead you can do is detect them early and respond to them effectively. And to do that, you need infrastructure. You need to have the technology to be able to do diagnostic tests. You need people who are trained to do those tests, to do regular surveillance. You need trained epidemiologists who can spot new signs of outbreaks and who know how to deal with them, who can find the contacts of people who are infected, who you know, who know good, solid, old school, on the ground, public health. And all of that infrastructure requires attention and it requires resources. And that's very difficult when you're in a developing country where resources are scarce. So there is a very strong argument, I think, that richer nations need to help Poorer nations build up their own health security, their own ability to respond to and control their own outbreaks. And I think there are two lines of logic for this. One is a moral argument. It's you know that's what I believe in that uh, that this is uh, and there is an ethical responsibility here. But even if like you don't buy that, even if you're not like f- pro the concept of foreign aid, there is an entirely selfish reason as well to to make these kinds of investments, which is. If diseases run out of control at their points of origin, in this connected world, they are much more likely to then escape borders and enter into new countries and spread all around the world. There have been so many examples where this has been the case. So even from a purely selfish perspective, this ethic of global cooperation and investment in global health is just the smart strategy.
2: Yeah, it's just, first of all, you kind of wish that Donald Trump and maybe some of his relevant cabinet and other officials could sit down. Even Since they, they're not really good at briefings or reading long papers and stuff, they watch the movie Contagion. You really kind of get a sense of how easily something can leave one place and get into another place. And, and keeping out— people who don't look like Gwyneth Paltrow isn't going to work. But this is sort of back up and say, I mean, the things that you're saying, maybe we just need to put a finer point on. So you have disease like Ebola, which is spread with bodily fluids. You want good sanitation, right? You want a good waste treatment system, stuff like that. You mm-hmm. want a good waste treat- treatment system in the Congo, I mm-hmm. mean, let alone in Detroit. Uh, so yeah, stuff that—when and- we talk about public health uh, infrastructure, we're talking about water— sanitation. We're talking about, I assume, vector control of other kinds. And we're also talking about immunization in those countries.
1: Right. I mean, to... There is now an Ebola vaccine. You know, there's still questions about uh, to to what extent it is useful. It was used in the last uh, Ebola outbreak, the most recent one that came to an end just yesterday in the Congo. That's part of it, but I think you're getting at that, you're getting at correctly that a lot of this infrastructure comes down to more basic measures. You know, it's not the like latest, fanciest tools of science and technology. Often it's very basic stuff that just is lacking. When I went to the Congo to look at places that had seen massive Ebola outbreaks in the past. There is still a lack of basic protective equipment, by which I mean things like gloves and hospital gowns you know e- ebola is not a very contagious disease uh, it doesn't spread readily through the air like flu does it only spreads through contact with bodily fluids so you know having people in a place that has experienced ebola like handling blood samples with that with like bare hands and no gloves is a problem and like these people are very well trained they're very well experienced they know what to do they just don't have the materials and, and part Partly that's again to do with this problem of forgetfulness, that we go through these peaks and troughs of readiness and then unpreparedness, because these are risks that go beyond that like last beyond the time spans of institutional memory or electoral cycles. And, and that's you know, it, it they kind of prey upon this human foible of being unable to really deal with long-term risks that are a little bit nebulous and, and hard. Hard to think about
2: it also seemed, though, Ed, I mean, on the one hand, you go to the Democratic Republic of Congo and you see yeah, there are medical technicians there who they do understand what to do and how to do it and what kind of protections to use. They just don't have the resources that they need. Mm-hmm. But the, you also saw cultural practices, not among medical technicians, but just among people whose relatives get sick. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, look, I'm, you know, from a white Protestant background, if somebody gets Ebola, we'll just put them out in the driveway and never go near them again. But you know, in different cultures, people react different ways in one way that you can act in some cultures is when somebody you know and love is sick, you
1: touch them and you Mm -hmm. hug them, right? Maybe you can say a little bit more about that. Yeah. So community is so, so strongly felt in the Congo. When people are sick, it's the family's responsibility to to look after them and to help nurse them back to health you know so people will go to hospital wards and hang out like around the air buildings to while their loved ones are recuperating if they die the funeral rites are all about love and community so people will hug the body they will clean and dress it they will spend time with it and there's not this same feeling that we have in the west of like you're sick you must stay away from me and i personally find these rituals like very moving they they they're all about love and and bonds of of community but Things like Ebola find it much easier to spread because of some of these practices. And I think that, again, this is why public health is important, because I think local people are better placed at explaining how to change one's practices in a way that is culturally sensitive and and understanding of these local customs and you know i think that we we in the west shouldn't uh, should should be wary of you know looking at these practices with a skeptical eye because we have our own problems too you know there's a huge amount of anti-vaccination sentiment in the West. you know, Even for diseases where we have vaccines for, we can control them through vaccination, the ultimate form of preparedness. A lot of people choose not to do that. The people I talked to in um, Western hospital bemoaned the lack of good infection control. It is very hard to get people in US hospitals to wash their hands adequately. Same problem that I heard when I went to the Congo and talked to people there. So, you know, a lot of these problems, these um, psychological Ecological and, and societal problems actually transcend countries, they transcend administrations, and they are, I think, the core of what we need to grapple with when we think about preparedness.
2: Yeah. I'm sure people from other cultures, when they go to a Western hospital, it's not as prevalent now, but for a long time in hospitals, there were all these doctors walking around with neckties on, <laughs> drag right. across right, right, surfaces, right. picking up things as they go. It's like the worst idea in the world, and it's a completely unnecessary thing, and a necktie doesn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we have our own weird cultural practices. We just mm-hmm. don't think they're weird because they're ours. Right, uh, um, right. So let's take a quick break here. Um, uh, so that's a little bit about how you could do some prevention stuff, but how about containment? How about an outbreak? That's where we're going to go next.
1: A plague upon the houses and a plague upon the trees A plague on all the birds that fly and a plague upon the bees You are a plague
2: upon Colin McEnroe. This is a show we did two years ago to talk about the danger of the spread of a pandemic. We're re airing it today just to show you how much was actually known before all this got started.
1: Mr. Amoff,
0: I'm, I'm sorry. Your wife is dead.
1: You know, I mean, I, I, just, I just saw her. We, we, we were just at home. Is there somebody that we can call? Someone who you think should be here with you? We, we, had, we had dinner. We had pizza. She, she
2: said she was jet-lagged.
1: Some people get a disease and live. Some get sicker and die. Now, we're going to have to notify the medical examiner, and they may request an autopsy. Or if you wish, we can order one. But I... I can't guarantee it's going to tell you any more than I can. I mean, my best guess is that this was either meningitis or encephalitis. And with encephalitis, we're in the dark a lot of the time. If it was summer, I might say a, a bug bite, you know, West Nile. Herpes can cause
2: encephalitis. She didn't have know. herpes. What are you talking about? What happened to her? That is from Contagion. So, uh, President Trump, watch the rest of the movie uh, and gather all your advisors around. Uh, we are talking about pandemics right now with Ed Young uh, writes about science uh, for the Atlantic and is the author of I Contain Multitudes, the Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life. I just We were just recalling during the break that that show actually changed our lives and our behaviors quite a bit. And Betsy Kaplan and I both cut way down on our Purell use and started being much more inviting of a rich diverse biome not only inside us but outside us and I started like petting my dogs a lot because they're, really, <laughs> they're really dirty and they're full of germs and stuff, and that's really good. Anyway, we're talking about something else. Right now, we're talking about uh, pandemics and plagues. He's got a piece in the current issue of The Atlantic, Atlantic when the next plague hits. Also joining us is Eric Toner, senior scholar uh, with Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and senior scientist for Johns Hopkins Blue School of Public Health in Environmental Health and Engineering. So we're going to have uh, Eric and uh, Ed talk a little bit about um, what happens when there's an outbreak. How do we contain it? How do we deal with it? So Eric Toner, first of all, welcome to our conversation.
0: Well, thank you very much. Happy to
2: be here. Uh, maybe we could just begin with uh, by saying that, although we began this show talking about the overall lack of preparedness of the United States and the declining preparedness uh, as this administration's jettisons money for it and people who know a lot about it, it is true that the United States government has in the past run simulations. So tell us about, I guess it's called Clade X, or, or tell us about Dark Winter. What, what are these things? So these are... these. Tabletop
0: exercises that we at the Center for Health Security have organized over the last couple decades, and the most recent one was uh, called Clade X, which we happened at really around the same time as Tim Ziemer was let go, and it simulated the an evolving uh, catastrophic pandemic caused by bioengineered pathogen, and our intent was to show the potential for pandemics, whether they're caused by naturally occurring pathogens or biologically engineered ones, and demonstrate the uh, policy issues, the kinds of issues that national leaders would have to deal with. So this exercise, like the previous ones we've done, involved former members of the U.S. government senior leaders, mostly former cabinet uh, officials, playing their prior roles And dealing with the kinds of challenges they would face during a severe pandemic.
2: All right, so we're going to talk a little bit more about that and sort of what happens when the disease starts very quickly to get out in front of the people who are trying to contain it. But let's go back to Ed for a second. Ed, in an ideal world as that happened, as that be- the scenario unfolded, we would have, in an ideal world, a lot of biocontainment units not unlike the one at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Quickly, Ed, just give us a sense of, of what that is like.
1: Okay, so this is a unit that I think is one of the best prepared in the country to deal with things like Ebola and SARS and deadly diseases that are rare and that uh, require special efforts. So the unit is under negative air pressure, which means when you go in, the air rushes in with you and stops viruses from escaping. Everything is very carefully sealed. There are UV light stands around to disinfect, to decontaminate rooms after they've been used. There are facilities for getting rid of waste. There are protective equipment so that people can treat patients. You know, every little detail is considered so that viruses can't move from patients to anywhere else, but that people can still receive the best possible medical care. Now, there are 10 beds in this facility. And it is one of the largest in the countries of its kind. So there are not a lot of hospitals that have the same level of preparedness. And, and you know, when it comes to something like Ebola or like SARS, it shows that there, there are limits to there's sort of a ceiling to what we can do. And, you know, bear in mind that this facility was dormant for about nine years after its creation. It was the work of people who had this idea that the hospital needed to be ready to deal with these threats and after the unit was created nothing happened and nothing continued to happen until the big west african outbreak of ebola when um, people were medevaced back to the u.s and and three patients were treated there Um, so i think my point here is that preparedness isn't in in the in the context of the U.S. Um, when when preparedness often faces these challenges of short-sightedness and forgetfulness, it often boils down to the will of like individual people, right? Working at institutions where they can make a difference and where they can say, "We need to have stuff ready during peacetime." even though they're not actually being used now and we need to get people trained in time we need facilities made that's a difficult ask to make and to then justify over time but i think it's it's what we need it's the whole ethos that that we should be striving for in all areas of policy
2: well eric turner when ed says not a lot of hospitals have that level of preparedness um I mean, that's almost an understatement, right? Hardly any hospitals have that level of preparedness.
0: Uh, Absolutely. Um, Until the Ebola outbreak um, and the handful of cases in the U.S., there were only four units uh, in the U.S., uh, Nebraska being the largest. um, And and now we have 10. Mm -hmm. And together, the 10 units could maybe handle a few dozen patients. Um, so we're we're talking about a a minuscule capability for handling um, these really serious uh, infectious diseases. So
2: so Eric, let's go back then to the simulation. And we should add that these simulations. I mean, one of the, one of the. Uh, realities of this is you often don't know exactly what it is you're dealing with or where it's coming from. In the case of Ebola or maybe a detectable influenza outbreak, yeah, you can get pretty specific about it. But some of these things are going to come in as, as problem X you don't even know. And I think in Cladex, I believe that was b- sort of bioterrorism by bi- apocalyptic style cult, right? That was some uh, religious group getting uh, uh, an antigen of some kind in here?
0: It was actually an international group headquartered in Switzerland. For oh. <laughs> it, it, it was somewhat loosely based on the Yom right. group in, in Japan that attempted bioterrorism and, and also chemical terrorism um, you know, a couple decades ago.
2: Yeah, but,
0: uh, but it was the same idea, and, and that is that uh, today bioterrorism can be uh, executed by people other than state-sponsored programs the revolution in biology has, has allowed us to manipulate organisms and the genetic material within organisms uh, much more easily. And so this capability exists actually very widely and does no longer requires a, a national weapons program to uh, achieve it.
2: Um, Eric, one of the things that I found fascinating in reading uh, about these simulations is that these people, and and once again to stress, uh, these people who are acting in the roles of key American officials. They're not from community theater. They're people who basically had these jobs or jobs that are very similar or maybe the Secretary of Defense is a former U.S. Senator with a a lot of defense expertise. That's who's there doing this. So they're trying to make these decisions and get out ahead of them. And one of the questions, one of the fundamental questions that comes up, if the thing is running way ahead of our capacity to deal with it through pre-containment or or vaccination or anything else, is at what point do you start doing things that might be described as un-American, right? You ultimately, you know, just like the movie Outbreak. They're talking about firebombing a town in Northern California uh, because there's Ebola there. And so what happens among, in, this, in the kind of situation room where these officials are trying to decide at what point is this so serious that I can't worry too much anymore about whether this is the kind of thing our country typically does?
0: Well, um, we were very fortunate in Claydex in and in our previous exercises to have very smart, well-informed, experienced uh, players who are not likely to go down those paths too far, but yet even with them, they quickly go to to think about things that are are not a good idea. So immediately there's uh, questions about travel bans. There are questions about um, mass quarantine. There are questions about uh, preserving resources for our people and not giving it to other people, not sharing vaccines, not sharing medicines. These kinds of things, which we know from lots of experience are bad ideas, seem on the surface to a lot of people to be... uh relatively simple solutions, and
2: they're not. Right. But, you know, Eric, if we knew that they were all bad ideas, we could disqualify them. But they're not all bad ideas. For example, if I were in that room, I would nationalize the hospital system on, like, day two or something, because you really can't have all these private hospitals making all their own little independent decisions about what they're going to do and who they're going to treat and how they're going to handle this.
0: Well, you know, that's that's actually one of the... Um, Scenarios that we built into it. It was suggestion was made in, in the exercise to nationalize the health system, and the question immediately becomes, well, how do you do that? <laughs> Who has the legal authority to do that? How do you make healthcare workers work, uh, take care of patients they don't want to take care of? Who's going to operate the hospitals? And the federal government doesn't have hospital administrators or nurses or doctors to send there. So none of these issues have easy
2: solutions. Although, once again, you know, um, Ed, we're back to that idea of culture and training. One thing that was discovered back in 1918 is that reasonably well-trained hospital workers who were young and healthy and probably had, you know, as much, although being young in 1918 was maybe not necessarily a great idea, uh, but they would stay by their posts and, and do their work. And I'm guessing if you train your workforce properly and make sure that they're fully, uh, you know, immunized and have the, the best possible. Possible chance that, you know, most of them are probably gonna um, respond pretty well. But you can't do that, um, Ed, on the day this all starts happening. You've got to create that culture over the course of years, I would assume.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, going back to the Nebraska example, um, they trained how to use that facility for all that time when it was lying dormant. They worked out, um, they, they practiced regularly at um, working as a team and putting on their protective equipment and moving people from like simulated flights to the hospital. So when they actually got patients, they weren't just going, what? what now? You know, they're they're relying on experience and muscle memory. Um, But, you know, I I want to add that public health people are kind of unsung heroes, right? An an awful lot is asked of them, very little credit is then given to them. And they're asked to do all of this work and protect us from a myriad of public health threats, um, using dwindling resources and often with dwindling staff. So, Preparing and doing that training and getting the experience built in takes time and it definitely takes money. And all the budgets for doing that work have been on the decline, not just in this administration, but in past ones. And that, again, speaks to this idea of of short-sightedness. Um, Eric, one of the things
2: that um, intrigues me. Okay, so at a certain point, let's say once again that you're doing these simulations um, We're not catching up with the problem. Um, There does come a point where some measures probably need to become compulsory. Uh, It could be something as simple as saying, let's close all the schools uh, and let's Uh, have no public gatherings or or just, you know, put put in some place some things that kind of slow the spread of something. But Americans don't like compulsory things. It's wired into our Constitution and into our hearts and souls that we don't like compulsory things. I read in one place that based on some of the experiences of 1918 there's like this 1% number that if 1% uh, of the sick people die, which would be 3 million people in America, you can start being compulsory. Uh, Is that the kind of thing that that these simulations have have looked at? Uh,
0: We didn't look at that specifically. Um, You know, there there certainly are a number of public health interventions that are possible and that have a legal standing. So the federal government and state governments can uh, implement quarantines. They can't, you know, forcibly isolate people who are contagious. They can close um, public gatherings. They can close schools. People don't always like it, but I think generally if they understand the threat to themselves and the threat to their families, they generally comply. As, as long as these interventions are being used in a way that makes sense. And and so it requires a lot of uh, communication, a lot of risk communication, a lot of explanation.
2: Um, let me ask you this. Um, Uh, I often phrase these questions as kind of magic wand questions, and maybe this isn't quite a magic wand question, Eric Toner, but um, let's say that I could give you more power than you currently have to change something, something that you feel is an acute Achilles heel uh, right now, uh, and let's say that I gave you more money than you currently have, more power and resources than you currently have. What's the first thing that pops into your head when I'm saying those things to you?
0: We need to be able to produce medicines and vaccines for novel new pathogens in months rather than decades that's what we need
2: um with that uh, we're going to take a little break. Thanks once again to Eric Toner, senior scholar with Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and senior scientist for Johns Hopkins Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in the Environmental Health uh, and Engineering sector. Thanks for being with us. We're going to take a break. Ed's going to stay. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the lessons. Some of them really fascinating that still exist from way back in
0: 1918.
2: Hi, this is Colin. Uh, If you're just tuning in the the middle of this, this show is from 2018. Uh, It's a show we did about whether or not we were ready for a pandemic. We said, probably not, and you know how things came out. But anyway, here's how things sounded in 2018.
1: Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan with help from me, Kion Wolf. Our intern is Zandra Ellen, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Dustin Hoffman. And now back to Colin.
0: He grabbed me and he ripped at me. He held me and he ripped at my clothes.
2: I think you should just calm down.
3: Oh, oh I screamed, Johnny! Johnny, help me! Oh, help me! And he wouldn't let me go. He ripped. It. And then Johnny came and he ran and he
1: he fought this man. And I got so afraid I ran, I ran, I ran.
3: And Johnny didn't come. We've got, to, we have to wait for Johnny.
2: No, what's going
3: on out there? This is no Sunday school picnic. Don't
2: you understand?
0: My brother is alone. Your
3: brother
2: is dead. No. See, we have this huge popular culture about pin. Pand- that's from Night of the Living Dead, by the way. And we have this huge pop culture about pandemics. About, I mean, all these zombie shows like you know Walking Dead and stuff like that. It's also about a band of hardy survivors who are still around after the pandemic. The problem is with pandemics, you know, a lot of times you're just not in the band of hardy survivors, uh, depending on how bad they are. Uh, A lot of people aren't in the band of hardy survivors. Uh, And that certainly was the case in in 1918. Uh, The Spanish flu, one of the most um, uh, um, undocumented or at least poorly remembered uh, moments uh, of history, maybe the most unremembered moment uh, in the history of the 20th century. Uh, Still with us uh, to talk about uh, pandemics is Ed Young, who writes about science for the Atlantic is the author of I Contain Multitudes, uh, The Microbes Within Us, uh, and A Grander View of Life. Uh, His recent article, When the Plague Hits, is in the current issue of The Atlantic. Uh, Joining us now is the author author also of another it really is kind of a wonderful book. It's If it's possible to write a, a beautiful book about such a horrible thing, Laura Spinney did it, a science journalist and author of most of most recently Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. So, Laura, first of all, welcome to our conversation.
3: Thank you. I'm very happy to be here.
2: All right. Uh, Laura's on Skype. It may take a second or two for the Skype to cook up um, so that uh, we get a a, a full sound from her. But so, Laura, uh, I think you share. I know from reading your book that you share my view that when you think about the impact uh, of the flu, uh, of 1918. And actually, it lasted more than that. But, you know, 50 to 100 million people died, most of them in a very short span of time, September to December uh, of 1918. It's possible, for example, to give you a sense of scale, that more people in India may have died just in India than all of the people who died in World War One. So I guess one of the questions is, why is this always kind of an afterthought when we talk about the calamities of the 20th century?
3: Uh, Well, it's an excellent question, and I was really fascinated by your conversation with Ed about forgetfulness, because, I mean, I think that it is becoming more on our radar, if you like, and this year, the centenary year, is a little bit of a red herring, because a lot of people are talking about it. But the fact is still that if you stop someone in the street and say, what were the worst disasters of the 20th century, almost nobody mentions the Spanish flu. And as you said, it killed, uh, we think now between 50 and 100 million people. To put that in perspective, the First World War killed around 18 million and the Second World War probably around 50 or 60 million. So it may have killed more than both those world wars put together. And it may even have been more murderous in terms of the number of people, absolute number of people who died than the Black Death. So it could have been the biggest catastrophe in terms of a single event in the whole of human history. That is possible.
2: One of the things that appeared to be the case, and one of the problems was there was no actual diagnosis uh, for influenza at that time. So, I mean, er, er, everything we think we know about given deaths is a little bit of surmise uh, attached to it. But, you know, when we think about the flu now, we think about who are the at-risk populations, the uh, older people, older uh, people are are considered an at-risk population, and uh, you worry about kids too. But the Spanish flu actually kind of targeted people, what, in their 20s and 30s, um, pretty ferociously.
3: Yeah, the age group of 20 to 40 was right in the firing line. The very young and the very old as well, although strangely the, the elderly were more protected in the Spanish flu than they had been in previous flu seasons. And and that tells us something, I think, about the way that our immune systems remember their exposure to flu viruses, but again, to go back to the the thing about forgetfulness, for most of the 20th century, we we didn't know how many of the Spanish flu had killed. So I think you know that that explains partly why we why it's so overshadowed, for example, by the First World War. Also, of course, there was the proximity in time. But I think that flu, um, which as Ed mentioned, is like considered by Bill Gates, the British government, and and many other worthy institutions and individuals as one of the if not the major risk in terms of public health to us today. Flu also conspires with that forgetfulness, strangely, because a pandemic tends to emerge or erupt Pretty much with the interval of a human lifespan, because what it likes is a global population that is immune, uh, sorry, naive to that particular strain of the virus. So people alive have never been exposed to anything like that before and they forget. And I think that feeds through to our attitudes. You were talking about investment in public health resources. We invest, I think, probably about 10% of what. Various institutions have calculated we would need to invest in order to make our public health systems resilient to such a disaster. And we have a big and uh, apparently growing problem of vaccine hesitancy. And you hear a lot of people talk about the safety of vaccines and they talk about the risks which tend to be minimal associated with those vaccines, but they never, or they rarely look at the other side of the equation, which is that those vaccines are only being administered in order to protect us from what the medical community considers a potentially greater risk, which is that of the disease it's designed to give us immunity against. And so you have to look at those two risks and balance them up. And the fact that we've forgotten about the horror of past pandemics means that we tend to reduce in our, in our perception the risk, you know, the risk of a future pandemic.
2: Ed, let's uh, bring you back into the conversation. You know, when you, we look at these kinds of things, there's two ways that pandemics can be, well, there's more than two, but can be really scary. One of them is the thing that we don't know. We're not ready for it. Uh, we've never seen it before. But then the flu is kind of on the other end of it, right? It's it's something that we do know about. We watch it pretty carefully. We will watch strains of it pretty carefully. We try to get the vaccines ready. We're not not always good at it. But it's in a way, it's... Its ubiquity and also the ease with which it spreads, it spreads more easily than, as you said, uh, Ebola does, makes it an especially dangerous enemy.
1: Absolutely. Uh, The fact that it uh, changes all the time, it's constantly evolving, um, which means that even though we do have a vaccine, that vaccine needs to be regularly updated. And we're sort of playing this constant guessing game, which uh, strains are going to pose the biggest problems in future years. We're also playing the same game in terms of pandemic strains, uh, strains that uh, aren't part of the usual seasonal circulating package of flu that hits us every year, that are new, that could cause large-scale devastation of the kind that that Laura so uh, uh, ably described and we are looking out for flu viruses the the surveillance network that looks for flu is arguably better than that for a lot of other potential um, pandemic threats but even it has blind spots you know back in 2009 it was focused on east asia when a strain of h5n1 bird flu was was deemed to be the most likely to cause a pandemic and while people's attentions were focused there uh, a strain of h1n1 um, arose in north america and and promptly caused an unexpected pandemic um, even now there are blind spots all around the world uh, despite having learned lessons from 2009 so you you know, flu flu just kind of keeps you guessing. It is a very very tricky and and constantly changing adversary, and it seems to have a knack for doing uh, the the unpredictable and unexpected.
2: One of the things we won't have enough time for is to give you even uh, a hint of the, the incredible flavor of Laura Spenny's book, A Pale Writer. I really, really do recommend it. And it, it's just the way in which it depicts the way the flu affected the tides of history in ways that you wouldn't have guessed or something like apartheid. Uh, also the way that it touched various cultural figures from uh, Apollinaire who died from it to Sigmund Freud who's uh, one of his, I think his daughter died from it. And it's just really, really fascinating and, and, and atmospherically very rich. But Laura, towards the end, you... You do look at some of these uh, modern questions. And boy, I, this is just me, I think. But one thing that really jumped out at me was a study being done, uh, co-authored by Nicholas Christakis, who for not fairly recently was the Master of silliman College at Yale, not too far from here. Um, and he was looking at this really fascinating thing, like how could you get, I keep using this phrase, to get ahead of something. So uh, let's say that it takes um, some of these world health organizations uh, about a week even to figure out what's going on. Uh, um, he asked this really interesting question, right? Which is maybe there's a whole bunch of people that you should vaccinate first because they just know more people.
3: Yeah, this is a really fascinating piece of research, as you say. And in fact, the concept behind it is not particularly new. People were talking about this back in the 1920s. In fact, even before the Spanish flu, it's the idea that something like a disease, an infectious disease, but also a fashion or a rumor spreads through a human population according to it the way it's structured in terms of its social networks okay so if you could understand something about those social networks then you could perhaps intervene more effectively at hubs or you know places where the disease or fashion is spreading very fast not that you would necessarily need to intervene with the fashion and that you could stop the spread of the disease more effectively and uh, what's new in the 21st century is that they can do you know sophisticated mathematical modeling of these things and chris Darkus and his colleagues took data from the 2009 flu pandemic, the so-called swine flu pandemic, um, and they modelled it. And they found that basically, so so the idea is based on something called the friendship paradox, which is that somebody that you think of as your friend is probably better well-connected, better connected socially than you. And it's a kind of mathematical trick. It doesn't really mean anything. You don't need to be worried about your unpopularity. But it's a, a mathematical fact which enabled them to divide a student population into one group of undergraduates and another group who they had nominated as friends. And basically, the spree spread, the flu spread more quickly through the group of friends than through the initial group of undergraduates. Right. Um, and it um, struck them probably about two weeks earlier. Um, so the idea is that if you could identify those friends, those better socially connected people in the population before a pandemic struck and, um, uh, you know, followed them, monitored them, then you'd have a at least a two-week advance On when a pandemic was was going to um, become a big problem. And and not only that, but you could be more effective in your interventions, because imagine you were to vaccinate all those socially important people, then they're the ones who are more likely to step into the path of other people and infect them when they're unvaccinated. But once vaccinated, you're going to attain quickly, uh, more quickly, something called herd immunity. This is actually something that's quite difficult to get with flu anyway, because of the not brilliant effectiveness of the vaccine and the fact that not everybody gets it. But you're going to get closer to a point where the entire population is protected because key people within it are not spreading that disease, and so you're going to save a, med- a lot more
2: lives. Right. It's really just fascinating stuff. The way that I simplify it is the same people who spread jokes spread flu. Uh, so you just <laughs> vaccinate <laughs> them. So um, we're almost out of time here. Um, and so, uh, Laura, just very quickly, uh, you know, Ed is talking about um, the rush to try to keep up with the strains and, and figure out where the danger is going to come from and um, the ina- therefore the inadequacy of some of the vaccines. Why is there no universal vaccine and how, how far away does that seem to you?
3: Ah, well, it depends who you ask. Some people will say we'll have one in five years. Some people say that it may not be possible. Um, we, we are always about five years off getting one. Um, I mean, in theory, it should be possible. and in, if if it did exist, it would be a huge leap forward because it would essentially mean that you could vaccinate people against, Um, all flu uh, strains that are circulating now in the world and all future ones that could potentially cause a future pandemic. So it would be an enormous, enormous advance. Mm -hmm. um, And that's why many groups are currently working on it. And some are even in early clinical trials. So, um, you know, we should have some information quite soon about whether, at least whether we're on the right track.
2: Right. I'm excited about the stem. There's one part of the virus that doesn't change that much. All right. So um, we have to think about it. everybody right now. Thanks to everybody who helped out, including Eric Toner, who's not with us anymore. Ed Young, uh, who writes about science for the Atlantic, uh, did a great show with us uh, based on I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us, and A Grander View of Life. This has been its own kind of terrific show. And Laura Spinney, a science journalist and the author of most recently, A Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. I really do recommend both of those books that I just mentioned and i'm not just saying that to suck up to the guests the guests are gone um i have no incentive to lie to you or curry favor with the guests thanks to betsy kaplan nurse uh, in addition to a producer who got all this stuff going